0: Alva, 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 Alva. There you are.
1: Hello and welcome to CageCast, the podcast that joyfully dissects the filmography of one of America's most unique and engaging leading men, Nicolas Cage. I'm Nate Porter and with me is Britt Porter.
2: Hello everyone, it's good to be back. For those of you just tuning in for the first time to our podcast, here's how CageCast works. We're in the process of watching every Nicolas Cage film in order according to the film's release date we'll be reviewing every film in which Nicolas Cage had either a starring role or an integral supporting role. This week, we're watching the 1989 cult classic, Vampire's Kiss.
1: That's right, and it is going to be awesome. We are going to break down the film's plot and themes, and then afterward, we will rate the film on a scale of 0 to 4 stars in three different categories. The film as entertainment, the film as art, and then in terms of Cage's performance. Last week, our score for Moonstruck was 17, which means Raising Arizona is still our number one ranked Nick Cage movie so far. Will Vampire's Kiss claim the top spot this week? You will have to keep on listening to find out.
2: Yes, I am very excited about this particular episode of CageCast because we have some fun surprises in store for you listeners. So keep on listening because it's what you do best. As a reminder, we do not share our scores with each other before the show. And then we round out our show with the patented CageCast Running Totals Rapid Fire Questionnaire.
1: Hey, Britt. What? Cage News.
2: What news do we have this week?
1: Truth be told, we don't have any news.
2: Dun, dun, dun!
1: One more thing, we really do want people to get the word out that we exist. You need to follow us on Twitter at @cagecast. check our Facebook page, you can post about our show on your Facebook page. Tell your friends, tell your neighbors, tell your enemies about us. Um, also, leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Your high praise on iTunes will really help us get this podcast off the ground. Our email address is ilovecagecast at gmail.com. I'm waiting for someone to reach out and tell me that what I am doing matters. It's really a very sad, lonely place that I Moving on.
2: So, this is normally the part of the show where we give you stats about Vampire's Kiss.
1: But honestly, there's not much to say. It was under $2 million to make, it was a bomb in the box office, and it is amazing.
2: That's right. There are not many notable co-stars. We have Maria Conchito Alonso, Jennifer Beals, who's probably the most notable notable co-star, and Elizabeth Ashley, but uh, yeah... Not a lot else going on there.
1: The director was Robert Bierman, who really did nothing else of note. Uh, the writer was Joseph Minion, who actually wrote After Hours for Scorsese, and then nothing else of note. The the only other thing we want to talk about is the cage genre. We've been firmly ensconced in the lovably dopey cage, and actually, we're onto something new. And if we're being true to ourselves, the only thing we can refer to this genre is batshit crazy cage.
2: That's right. This is something the likes of which we have not seen and really have no other words to describe.
1: Sorry, Mom, if you're listening, I, I do say that word from time to time.
2: What, bat?
1: Cage. Coming up next, we're going to welcome the film critic Fred Tappell onto the show to break down vampire skits. But first, here's a song from the soundtrack we Okay, and we are back. Vampire's Kiss. I cannot wait to talk about this.
2: Well, we have someone to talk about it with this time. Well, that's new. Mr. Fred Tapel.
3: Why, thank you, Britt and Nate. I've been a long-time listener since the beginning of Cagecast.
2: <laughs> oh, my goodness. The only one.
3: I was waiting many years for you to get to Vampire's Kiss.
2: I know. We made you wait a long time. It's funny
1: because it's true. You waited many years, and this is only the eighth episode.
2: So, Fred, tell us a little bit about yourself.
3: You may know me from the website Crave Online, where I wrote the definitive Nicolas Cage piece, 15 Essential Films, and I also write for other fine websites like Nuke the Fridge. You might have heard of them.
2: Actually, I'm a big so. fan of the 15 definitive Cage films, as you, can, as you can guess.
3: Well, thank you. It was hard to narrow it down to 15. <laughs> right. I think I could have done 20, but I had to do 15, so I did 15. I had to leave out National Treasure 2, Matchstick Men. Magic Man is great, too. That's too bad. They had to go.
1: Now, what about Vampire's Kiss? That was on the list, yes?
3: Yes, of course. And we went in order of release, so they weren't ranked. If I were ranking them, this would be in the top three. Tell us why. What's your history with this movie? I actually came to Vampire's Kiss very late. Uh, Nicolas Cage has been my favorite actor since the 90s and i'd always known about vampire's kiss so when i finally decided to do some homework i rented vampire's kiss uh, this was from netflix by disc so that's how long ago it hey was. we
1: still we still got that don't don't judge
3: <laughs> <laughs> well now i own proudly own a copy of vampire's kiss and i'm excited it's coming out on blu-ray next year but when i first started watching it it took me about 15 minutes to get it for the first 15 minutes I think – I was like, oh, well, this is stupid. I'm not going to like this. And then it clicked what he was doing. It's like, oh, this might be the greatest movie ever. And (laughs) – I think you may be right. Now that I rewatch it again, I don't know what happened at the 15-minute mark. It's not some key scene. It's not the alphabet scene for sure. I remember 15 minutes being the time frame that I just got what the voice was, that it wasn't supposed to be realistic, that he knew it sounded ridiculous. I just became fascinated with it. There is a, one of the few Nicolas Cage commentary tracks on the DVD, so as soon as it was over, I started it again and listened to the commentary. It's a pretty informative commentary, so you know, it tells us a lot about his process, the making of the film. And I, I just fell in love with this movie, and it became the definitive Nicolas Cage movie for me. I've shown it to people, i uh, gotten people into it, so I'm very excited to go in depth into Vampire's Kiss with you.
1: Yeah, I was. Uh, we just picked this up too on uh, on DVD, which is the only way you can find it. I don't know. We got the for one now. Yeah, we exactly. We got the one with. It's the double feature with um, Once Bitten. On on one disc and uh, and this Vampire's Kiss Once Bitten was that uh, Jim Carrey comedy from the eighties, I believe, and it that's was that's a uh, good,
3: that's it, actually a really good double feature. It's not bad. Once Bitten is sort, I mean, Once Bitten is a comedy, but it's actually the straight version of Vampire's exactly. Kiss. Exactly,
1: I was thinking that, <laughs> and uh, I, I tell you, I was doing backflips, not literally, but in my head, I was when I saw that Nick Cage did a commentary track on this because. It is very rare that he would actually do that. And um, I listened to it this afternoon, actually. And it is very, very informative. After, uh, I guess we'll get into what we thought about the movie. But I would say, uh, if you're going to watch this movie, make sure you get the version with the commentary track and watch it right after, like Fred talked about. Because it, it really opens up a whole new world of understanding. And my enjoyment of the movie probably doubled after listening to that and understanding the process and that kind of thing.
3: I think at first the only thing I knew was this is the one where he eats the cockroach. Yep. That's pretty great, but that's the least interesting thing about this movie.
2: Yes, agreed. Although that's a fun scene. It, it's, there's so many, there are so many pivotal scenes. It's really hard for me to choose. Yeah, I can't, favorite. I can't
1: wait to talk about this movie with you, Britt, because you're, uh, I think, I you think. You stopped his, taking notes at about the 15 minute mark. I
2: did, basically. I've got like two sentences. 15 minutes, the magic yeah. 15 minutes. Exactly. Yeah, I have th- two sentences down, I think.
1: We will get to the bottom of this. We will dissect this movie. Yes. We will yeah. put it to bed once and for all. Yeah,
2: forward. I think okay. the massive desk jump is up there for me as oh, man. Great
1: moment. <laughs> so great. Okay, we gotta stop. We gotta stop reminiscing right, right now okay. about the movie, and then uh, we will get into it. I, I I had known about its existence, and so I've been waiting for it to come up for again a, a few years now. But I know it had always come up on like the YouTube videos of Nick Cage's craziest moments, and you'd see little clips and say, "Okay, well, that's out of context," and I wonder what that's all about. But I've been very, very curious.
2: Well, I have zero background with this movie. I only knew of its existence about a month or two ago when we were in talks with Fred here about the prospect of doing this. It's
1: basically podcast. Moonstruck 2. It's, it's, yeah, know,
2: that's what it is. Yeah. Basically
1: the same character. Yeah, It is. You know.
2: It's so, yeah, I was very, uh, had no idea really what I was getting into. No, you did not. really made it a very exciting watch screening process.
3: Well, some people I've shown it to said, all right, I could watch a vampire movie. I said, well, no, no, you're not going to yeah, watch a vampire right. movie. Not really,
2: Right.
1: All right, Britt, why don't we do the plot synopsis, and uh, we'll get going on this.
2: Peter Liu Lou, <laughs> is a driven literary agent who is slowly going insane. He works all day and club hops at night with little in his life, but one night stands in the pursuit of prestige. He sees a therapist frequently, and during their sessions, his declining mental health becomes clear through a series of increasingly bizarre rants. After taking a girl he met in a club back to his place, an incredibly lifelike bat flies in through his window and scares the woman.
1: That Incredibly Lifelike was my addition
2: Yeah, I was going to say, did you write this one?
1: Yeah, I don't. Did you? We'll talk about that bat.
2: Oh, all right. Okay.
1: Lo meets another woman named Rachel at a bar and takes her home. She pins him down, reveals fangs, and bites his neck. He soon begins to believe that he is changing into a vampire. He stares into the bathroom mirror and fails to see his reflection. He wears dark sunglasses during the day. And when his fangs fail to develop, he purchases a pair of cheap plastic vampire teeth. All the while, Rachel visits him nightly to feed on his blood.
2: Lou, Lou, also torments his secretary, Alva, by forcing her to search through files for an elusive contract. When she fails to find the contract, he at first browbeats and humiliates her, then visits her at home and finally attacks her, hoping to bite her neck. She mistakes the attempt to drink her blood as a rape attempt, causing her to pull out a gun, and Lou begs her to shoot him. He then takes the gun and attempts to fire it in his mouth, but after shooting twice, he does not die. The bullets were blanks.
1: He goes out to a club wearing his plastic vampire teeth and begins to seduce a woman. But when he gets a little too grabby, she slaps him. But then he overpowers her and bites her neck, having taken out the fangs and using his real teeth. As he is leaving the club, Lowe has a brief, ambiguous encounter with Rachel. She admits to knowing him, but gives the impression that they have not been in contact for a long period of time. He accuses her of being a vampire, which she is not, and he is thrown out of the club.
2: Alva's brother goes after Lowe to seek revenge. Peter is wandering the streets in a blood-spattered business suit talking to himself. In a hallucinatory exchange, he tells his therapist that he raped someone and also murdered someone else, which is... A fantastic scene. As Lowe returns to his destroyed apartment, Alva points out Lowe to her brother, who pursues him inside his home with a tire iron.
1: In the midst of an argument with an imaginary romantic interest... Was Sharon. Sharon. Yes. He he begins, I can't even get through this. He begins to retch and crawls under an upturned sofa slash coffin. Alva's brother finds him and Lo, uh, Lo holds a large broken shard of wood to his chest as a makeshift stake. A gesture he had made earlier to passersby on the street asking them to stake him through the heart. Alva's brother pushes down on the stake and it pierces Lo's chest. The movie ends with Lo envisioning the vampire Rachel one last time.
3: What I love about Vampire's Kiss is we see so many versions of the story where someone is bitten by a vampire and goes through the transformation. Well, what if that were all just bullshit and it was just a crazy person? Yes, exactly.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I think the synopsis I think we could have that. ended with the first sentence. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Peter Lois driven literary agent who is slowly going insane. Me? Yes, basically that could have been the plot synopsis.
2: I know we need to get into the movie and walk through it chronologically, but just reading that synopsis, there are so many things that came to mind for me that were so damn funny. Like the fact that he doesn't go all out in buying his vampire teeth.
1: <laughs> right. No, has the has nice to get- ones are $19.99.
2: <laughs> yes. Yeah, the cheapy ones. I just love it. All right. We're, right. we're
1: going to get into this. And I'm feeling, Britt, that you are liking this in uh, more uh, on retros- in retrospect than you did at the time when we watched it last night.
2: Yes, he is so bananas and it's well done, but hilarious at the same time.
3: Okay. This is the most unhinged Nicolas Cage has been. And I think when I first discovered it, uh, when I came to it late, people who have seen all the mainstream or even some of the arty Nicolas Cage movies have not seen Nicolas Cage go crazy until they've seen Vampire's yeah, Kiss. not like this.
2: Yeah. And it's been, it was interesting to go into it not knowing much because we are watching his career chronologically. So you, we've seen where he's been and kind of this dopey, lovable character for a number of films. And then he's just done Moonstruck and that this is the next project that he chooses is, it's just a really interesting career progression. We've taken a very sharp turn in a completely different direction, or he has, I should say. So it just adds to the, the in- interest for me to know where he's come from at this point in his career.
3: Wow. I never thought of that because I looked at it backwards where I knew he'd gone crazy, and, but I never knew that <laughs> that this is where it started.
2: Yeah. And I think he talked a little bit about that in the commentary. Did you say, Nate, that he wasn't too stoked about Moonstruck at the time? Right. So right. He was That's like- what he
1: said. I think you're right, Britt. This is our eighth movie in this... Um- in the series that we've seen and, and arcade genre has always been lovably dopey from raising Arizona to even the boy in blue to racing with the moon to even Valley girl. You know, he's always kind of this, ah, shucks, kind of punk rock, kind of like you wouldn't necessarily want to take him home to mom. There's a, there's an edge to him, but he's not crazy. And, uh, I think this is definitely an opportunity for him to kind of put all of that behind him and blaze his own path. I think that's what we're seeing. And he is blazing it with a vengeance in, in vampires, Kiss. enough pleasantries. Let's, um, let's get into the movie. First off, Where do we even start? Well, let's start with the, um, let's start with where the movie starts. New New York city. We get about two minutes of New York in the morning and the city looks great. They shot it on location. Um, the city is definitely, uh, a, a character. I hate saying that. Oh, the city is a character in the movie, but it really is. You really feel like you're there, and you can really feel like it's in in pre Giuliani New York, where it's still a little dirty and still a little dangerous.
3: I hate that New York City is a character thing too, and Nicholas Cage even says it in the commentary track.
2: There we go. Well, I it hate myself in because I, be I, I a agree with it.
1: We meet our hero. About two minutes into the movie, he is in his therapist's office. His therapist is played by Elizabeth Ashley, and I think she's great.
2: Oh, she totally bugs me. Why it's does not, she bug you? It's not until the very end, during his hallucination, that I find any of those therapist scenes enjoyable.
3: Really? I, I, keep th- I thinking th- I totally shes disagree.
2: I think, keep thinking she's such a bad therapist. Like, well,
3: here's it? a question. Do we think this therapist is real? Is he really seeing a therapist?
2: That's a good question. I did wonder that at the end.
1: Here we go. Because if she wasn't real, all of what you just said is meaningless,
2: Brent. (laughs) (laughs) She's not good. That's a good question.
1: I think that, well, for now, I'm going to say she's real and then i might revise that at the end of this review
3: i didn't mean that the comment that her therapy is bad was meaningless she is still a bad therapist whether she's imagined <laughs> or a licensed therapist
2: when does she give him legitimate advice she just keeps listening to his crazy i thought
1: that's what therapists actually did just don't they just let you talk for an hour and take 120 bucks
2: i feel like she was a very one-dimensional stereotypical therapist and I, I'm curious as to whether or not that was an actual directional choice.
1: Well, is that the character or the actress? I think the actress played it fine. And I liked her voice. Ca- yeah. I her think voice worked for me.
2: There's one scene towards the middle to end that makes me think she's real.
1: So in this opening scene, Peter is regaling his therapist with a uh, story of the woman he had brought over the night before.
2: Was that the Batwoman?
1: That was not the Batwoman. It was just, I, I don't know if we know who that woman was. It was just somebody that he had brought brought back and then... Um, He was explaining to her how he brings these women home and he uh, makes just sweet, sweaty Nicolas Cage love to them and then kind of gets them moving on their way and that he seems to be stuck in this cycle.
2: He seems a bit self-indulgent in this initial scene to me. And I think that part of that is complemented by these terrible therapy sessions with this horrible therapist. He doesn't seem actually that interested in helping himself.
3: Well, that's for sure, and that's probably how a lot of therapy sessions go, where someone goes to have a therapist tell them they're right and don't worry.
2: <laughs> right. I mean, the, and again, like, the last session that he quote-unquote has with her is my favorite because it just seems to take that idea and play it out to its extreme right. logical it's, end, yeah. which I love.
1: I would say if she's real before that, she's not real in the end. I right. think. If, if, if he's having a conversation with her, it's because he's smacked his head against a concrete pier. We quickly find ourselves with Peter at another bar the coming night, picking up on even more women. One thing that uh, struck Britt and I right away when we were watching this was the music. And the music actually does play a, a pretty big part in this movie. And so I think we should take it just a second and talk about the soundtrack. Britt, what stood out most to you when you were hearing? The soundtrack of this movie
2: we talked about the city being a character and i think this is just a, a dimension of that an aspect of c- sort of club life and like
1: the time and the place where this movie set
2: yeah i it's think de- so
1: definitely squarely 1988
2: it's just very vibrant but also a little frenetic i think like everyone that you see is sort of right on the verge to me of being out of control and I think the music just accompanies that, you know, enhances that emotion that I think is present, if that makes sense.
3: I feel bad now. I actually don't remember the music very well. Uh, certainly not as much as the soundtrack to Valley Girl or even Raising Arizona. Uh, you guys just watched the movie last night, so the music really stood out to you? Well, it did It did to me. I mean, there's a, a few scenes
1: of just... Um, and we'll play a few of these during the podcast, but um, either either very 80s kind of clubby dance numbers like like a duran duran type music but the interesting thing that i thought is we had that 80s music as well as classical music peter is hums stravinsky and um there's there's this kind of air of highbrow and a very classical score i know they had um i think it was a ukrainian orchestra play all of the uh the music for the score. And it was very, very orchestral, very ornate, juxtaposed with this 1980s kind of club dance music. I thought it was very interesting. And I think it, it kind of shows that dynamic of of Peter's character living in, in two worlds. He wants to present himself as this very well-put-together, well-suited character, but actually he's um, maybe trying to be something he's not.
3: And he's not a vampire, that's for sure.
1: It becomes clear pretty soon that, that we understand that he's just crazy.
2: Okay, so let's jump ahead a little bit. He takes this woman from the bar home. Jackie. Oh, is that her name? He takes Jackie home.
3: Yep. And Casey Lemons. Casey Lemons, who, although she is a great director now, I know her best as Nina Blackburn from Fear of a Black Hat. Oh. The reporter, uh, uh, the fake documentary about the fake rap group.
1: Oh, I got to check it out. We'll put it in the queue.
2: Yeah, for sure. We love a good documentary. Well,
1: she – um, this is what in the industry they call a fearless performance, which means she shows her, her boobs.
2: Oh, great. Sorry. Thanks.
1: That's, what, that's um, fearless, darling, just in case you were wondering.
3: Noted. As opposed to Jennifer Beals, who you can see. Oh, the you, can to- you
2: can totally her see her, bo- her booby exactly. patches. It was- in not one, but two or three Twice. seeds. Yes. Come on. Well, I was, I'm
1: pretty convinced that all of Jennifer Beale's scenes were shot in one night. They didn't have a, a chance to.
2: I'm convinced she had a body double because her knockers in those scenes were a whole lot bigger than any other time she was on screen. <laughs>
3: Listen. If it were today, they could CGI out the boob pads. It would all be fine. This is the '80s. <laughs> this
2: is the in 80s.
1: Blu-ray. Maybe, maybe in the Blu-ray restoration.
2: Right? <laughs> yeah, maybe that's okay. when they oh, Wait. Now you're talking
3: about some Star Wars special. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want to compromise the original. Maybe effect. JJ See, okay, Abrams
1: exactly. will throw a so lens flare in, in this into scenario, this one. he
3: bites first. So, all
2: right. Jackie and Peter go back to his place, and okay, so I didn't get this until maybe a third or a halfway through the film, there's a lot of shots, camera shots of us, the, the audience watching Peter and what he's doing as though we're peeping Toms. And I kept thinking initially, why why is this how we're glimpsing his life? We're not in the apartment with them We're not standing outside the door. We're actually watching from a window at an angle. Initially, I thought, why is the director making this choice? Why does he want his audience to feel uncomfortable watching what's already kind of an uncomfortable? Almost a
1: voyeuristic shot choice, yeah.
2: Totally. And then we kind of were talking about it midway through the film. There are a few shots like this. I wonder if it's intended to give the impression of us watching as though we were bats or vampires ourselves.
1: Well, going back and watching uh, a second time, I was, I was trying to see if the camera angle that we saw was where the bat flew in and it absolutely was. And so I I, I definitely noticed that, that going through that we, we saw a lot of these kind of voyeuristic high angle shots. And um,
3: Nate, you already watched it twice in one day. I'm proud of you
1: well it's I'm thinking about watching it again oh my gosh it's it's really growing on me it's really special maybe we should uh maybe we should record another podcast tomorrow because I think my estimation will even
0: raise even then all right <laughs> I brought this girl up to my place the other night, really hot, you know, and we're on the bed and suddenly this bat comes swooping down out of nowhere a bat holy shit but this this really happened, but the part. This part, I don't know if this really happened, or I dreamt it later, or what. I mean, I'm fighting this bad off all alone, and I'll be damned if I didn't get really turned on. You were aroused? Yeah. But you said just a few seconds before you were in the throes of passion. With the girl? Well, guess with the girl. Oh, sure, yes, absolutely. But then she left the room, and I was, I mean... I came down. I, you know, I was in Mortal Kombat with a fucking bat. Give me a break. And so let's
1: talk about this bat a little bit. Behind the little behind the scenes. Nick Cage wanted an actual bat to be brought into this apartment. And the director had to talk him out of it.
2: So is that a fake bat?
3: Uh, Yeah. Oh, well. For sure.
2: Sorry, I'm not. I wasn't that dialed in. I was. It a-
3: is. It is. But I'm sure it looks better than what any CGI bat they would use today.
2: Yes.
1: So what do we think the significance is? Is this the beginning of his dementia setting in, is this just an expression of that? Uh, she obviously sees this bat, right?
2: Yeah, I don't know. Is this the, like, does his mind grab onto this particular image and then use it to carve out this whole idea of being a vampire? And I,
3: I think we trust that Casey's character, Jackie, is, <laughs> is the sane one, you know, the sane <laughs> world <laughs> reacting to this creep Peter Lowe who keeps coming back into her life. Uh, so, yes, she saw the bat. She had a normal reaction of getting out of there, but sort of laughing about it and running away. So, yes, the bat happened. And that is probably where Peter started to run with it and think, oh, bats, vampire bats. I might be a vampire. And then his uh, his psychosis, it created the rest of it.
2: You kept saying, what does the bat mean? No,
3: I think I hadn't. What does it I mean? think
1: I hadn't seen the rest of the movie then.
2: What does the bat I think
1: mean? the bat means nothing. I think it's exactly what what we kind of just came up with. Okay.
2: <laughs> All right. So, after his batty encounter, Peter goes to work.
1: Yeah, right. and this is where we're introduced to one of my favorite meaningless but awesome plot lines of the movie that finding that contract.
3: Meaningless. I think the whole I could see a whole movie about Peter Lowe just terrorizing his secretary over this contract. Oh my god. The vampire stuff is sort of inconsequential. I'm not saying I'm not
1: saying I didn't love it, and it wasn't the best part of the movie. I'm saying, I'm saying it, it did not move the plot forward. It just made for the absolute best um, one-liners. It made for the absolute best kind of through line for the movie. But ultimately,
3: but really, I think it's an important subplot because how could something be misfiled? Really, <laughs> I've right. never misfiled anything. <laughs>
1: Um, I've watched that about 10 times today. Anyway, we'll get there. We'll get there.
2: So essentially, this contract that we keep referencing, he is looking for an old, decades-old contract.
1: The Der Spiegel contract.
2: Right, that one of his writers is requesting. And he makes it very clear to his secretary, Alva, that he does not want to take the time required to go and look for it. And he's making her do it. But then, as the film progresses, it becomes one of the things, I think, almost like the idea of him becoming a vampire, where he just has a reason to go crazy on her, if nothing more than just to show that his madness is really leaking out. So I do think it actually has, I mean, it doesn't move the plot forward, except that it does in the sense that it's another avenue for his madness to come out, for his insanity to show.
1: And it's just wonderful.
2: Yeah, and it's just a chance for him to like really plumb the depths of his crazy in public. Because a lot of his vampire crazy happens in his apartment, right? I,
3: wa- I wonder if Kevin Spacey saw this performance before he did Swimming with Sharks.
2: It's entirely possible.
3: And you're right. The craziness that has to do with the contract really has nothing to do with being a vampire. And it's the best crazy in the movie. It
2: is. It is. And it, you don't see the vampire crazy doesn't go public until the very end. So we get to see it. But in terms of the rest of the world sort of understanding what's happening to him, you know, no one else really gets it. I mean, I think one secretary says he's eccentric and that's about as much right. <laughs> as anyone seems yeah, to us. Yeah,
1: understatement of the century. Yeah, right. And, and what, I, what I love, what really kind of accentuates this contract business is we find out pretty early on that the client really isn't that invested in finding this contract. He would like to see it, but he basically calls and gives a... Um, kind of a carte blanche for him to take as much time as he possibly needs to find this thing. He understands that it's going to be a long arduous thing and to not worry about it. Instead of relaying that information to Alva, he uses it to actually turn up the heat. And Alva obviously is played by Maria Conchita Alonso. And I think she was really good in the movie. I think in the beginning, she, came across as very compliant, very willing to serve and man, he just puts her through the paces and you can tell by the end, honestly, she's kind of a shell of her former self uh, ending, ending up being kind of huddled up in her bed at the end of the movie, just not even wanting to talk to her family or, or really even leave her house or go into the outside world.
3: I think it's when he comes and stalks her at home. I think if it had just been the office abuse, you know, she could have gone home at the end of the day and chalked it up to having a bad job but then he comes after her at home too, so she yeah. can't escape
2: him. He breaks but the Fred, personal He brought barrier. soup.
3: <laughs> <laughs> he does that soup was a
2: ruse. A ruse,
3: I tell you.
1: <laughs> and it's and it's not even like hot homemade soup. It's like the uh, the Lipton uh, the just soup add packet water. soup.
2: I was going to say I do think that there is a few rounds of sort of just establishing the pattern of his life: going to therapy, going to work, not really liking Alva, being weird at therapy. Work, therapy, job, blah, blah, blah.
1: I think at this point, we're, we've been given a pretty good idea of him and his character. He cares very much how he looks, and I think he looks good. I think Nicholas Cage was about 23 when we shot this movie, and he's looking as good as he has looked in any other movie, in my opinion. I think he, he's wearing really nice suits in this movie. He cleans up really well, and he knows he, how good he looks. He he, You often see him preening in the mirror before he goes out, which is ironic because later on, when he can't see himself in the mirror, that really goes to speak to like his identity, and and he's been wrapped up in this, this identity that he's kind of built for himself. And him not being able to see himself in the mirror, I think, is part of that identity crumbling away.
3: This would be a good time to talk about the voice, because before he doesn't turn into a vampire, he's already doing a fake voice. One of my favorite things about Nicolas Cage is hearing the different voices he comes up with for various characters, and... Boy, I I knew he had gotten in in trouble, sort of, for the Peggy Sue Got Married voice, but the Vampire's Kiss Peter Lowe voice is just perfect. I mean, the idea seems to be clearly, it's obviously a fake voice in the world of Vampire's Kiss, too. This is what Peter Lowe thinks sounds smart and intellectual. Yes, Um, And he, he said in the commentary, it's his father's voice. So that is August Coppola we're hearing. Uh, as the voice of Peter Lowe. The, uh, a continental affectation, he said. Yeah, he said his father took on that voice to teach his classes as a professor. So
1: Because he wanted to sound like he was important or distinguished.
3: So if you can imagine how many decades he must have taught with that voice, and here's a guy who is just putting that voice on to talk to his fellow suits at the literary agency and he, look for those contracts.
1: Yeah, the voice was one of the... the it went in and out, the accent went in and out enough to know that something, this was an intentional choice. Nick Cage is not the kind of actor who who doesn't nail an accent. He definitely can be consistent if he wants to. And so I was picking up on that as well and thinking, okay, so the voices and the inflections that we hear throughout the scenes are really going to be important because they're an intentional choice by Cage as an actor to kind of portray maybe some deeper emotion and feeling about what's going on with the character.
3: I think we hear the Peter Lowe voice again in Trespass, which you will get to in many, many episodes down the line. Yes, at this rate, it may be years and or decades, <laughs> but we will get there.
2: I'm excited. I'm excited to hear Peter again.
3: So now we're going to meet Jennifer Beals, the not vampire who does not bite him and turn him into a vampire. I think Or does she? No, I- no she, <laughs> no, does, she not. does not. That's <laughs> yes, exactly. There was, there was a moment, um,
1: and we can get into it, where there was question. Our introduction to her at, in the club is um, is very nice and actually very sweet. I don't have a ton of history with her as an actress. I know she was in Flashdance, one of your favorites, Britt.
2: Yes, I love her in Flashdance. That's iconic for me.
1: And I know she was in uh, a lot of the series The L Word as well. I know she's a great actress, and she's beautiful in this movie.
2: Yeah, the girl can rock a smoking hot body for sure in this one. This was at the... She was at her physical peak, I think, fresh off of flash dance. <laughs> and I think Perhaps. her smoking hot
1: body had a contractual obligation to not show her smoking hot body.
2: Hence the booby patches so prominently displayed.
1: Something like that.
2: Oh, my goodness.
3: Fred, what's your budget. take on budget. They didn't Jennifer? have
2: enough budget to make up those. They just had to go run down to the drugstore and buy Band-Aids. That's what happened.
3: This is totally random, but yours, yeah, reminding me of the booby patches, made me think if the voice, if the teeth, if everything about being a vampire was intentionally fake, maybe those were supposed to be fake for the fake love scene too.
2: Oh, I, we, I like that. Oh uh,
3: Yeah, I, I absolutely think 100%
1: they were thinking that, that through. I'm, I'm pretty sure that was a... <laughs> That was a sage directorial vision of, uh, of Bierman, uh, I'm pretty sure. Um, or they, they were the cheapest way to, for her not to sue them when the movie came out.
3: Maybe it was Nick's idea. Hey, hey Jennifer, you should put these on and we'll see them in the scene. <laughs>
1: because he's punk rock like that. (laughs) Okay.
2: So he thinks he's getting into another one night stand, another typical deal, but
1: another, another dry humping of his leg. We just, you know, they're kind of getting into it. We think, okay, well, they're just going to, they're going to have sex and it's going to be the normal scene. And, uh, you know, she might just be kissing him, but at some point something changes in his mind. And he is convinced that she is a vampire sucking his blood and,
3: well, or if you're seeing this for the first time and you think it's a vampire movie, you, you might think, oh, this is the scene and she's the vampire who turns him. Right. And we'd be none the wiser until later in the movie.
2: <laughs> well, and even I think is it the next morning, he's whistling and talking to, presumably to her as he makes coffee. And then goes to hand a cup of coffee to someone who may be invisible because she's a vampire. But then his hand is shaky, and there's just so much that that did nothing to dispel the insane. So let's talk about this right now.
1: Does she exist?
3: She exists because she he sees her again, but she definitely didn't stay the night, and might not have even come over.
1: And that's I guess that's uh, even more drilling down to a finer point. Did she come over? Is any of this real or is this the beginnings of his hallucinations? He's fully clothed in this. He has his, you know, his shirt and his boxers on, which might indicate that it's simply maybe part of his fantasy.
2: Yeah. I I noticed um, last night when we were screening this that we're really only, except for a few handful of scenes, most of the time we only ever see him dressed in either a full suit or. In his underwear, and and so I see what you're saying. I wonder if that this is her presence at all is fictional, and just the beginning of his.
1: Later on, she barely remembers that his name is Peter, and so I think if she had actually come over and they had had sex, she might have remembered that a little bit more clearly. I bet they met in that that bar that night. They had a conversation. He went home, and everything after that was in his imagination.
3: Yeah, and it's possible that she came over and wanted to get the hell out right away.
2: <laughs> yes, entirely.
3: It's so hard to take myself back to the first time I watched this when I didn't know what was coming next, but I'm I would imagine maybe seeing him holding the coffee cup over an empty bed might have been when I realized, "Oh, uh, this isn't really happening. He's just crazy.
2: Well, I certainly knew that he was crazy in that scene, but I don't think I quite grasped.
3: Yeah,
1: and- yeah. I think we were we were both kind of looking at each other, saying, trying to trying to exactly figure out what's going on. But obviously, something is not right. So right after this, he is happy. He is taking a shower. He is shaving, and he nicks himself in the um, in the neck, which gives him a great opportunity to put a band aid over his neck for. Almost the rest of the movie.
2: Yeah, I kept thinking at some point towards the end of the movie, someone was going to take the Band-Aid off and there's nothing was going to be there and that he was going to be found out as being a psycho. I kept waiting for the angry coworker to rip the Band-Aid off his neck and it never happened. I mean, he uh, he did not disappoint, believe me, but I just kind of thought that that might be a part of the storyline where he's found out to be a total Well, at some point, don't
1: we see it come off and see bite wounds on his neck?
2: Well, he takes it off, I think, for a scene with her. He like. Yes. But but never apart from her do we see him without his bandage. Well, Britt, I think I think
3: that would have happened if this were a movie where anyone believed he was turning into a vampire. But I don't think but no one does. That's true. And I don't know that he mentions it to that many people. Does he tell anyone in the office?
2: No, you're right, though. And no one mentions it. So there are parts of this movie that don't work for me. And I realize that this is not meant to be a movie of realism. This is a study in insanity. And, and, you know, if I may be so bold, this is Nicolas Cage's own personal heart of darkness. Uh,
3: this is his, (laughs)
2: right? This is how, how deep into crazy can he go and make it, and make it work, right? So I get all of that. That being said, there are parts of this movie that don't work for me, just in sort of an attempt at normalcy. And the fact that he wears this Band-Aid for days on end and nobody notices or says anything when it's so prominently displayed on his neck, that bugged me. And I know that's a really small detail, but I just kept thinking, if I wore a Band-Aid on my neck five days in a row, someone, was, someone would ask me about it. And no one ever says anything to him about it. And I just keep thinking, how, how normal is that? How real is this world? And I don't know, maybe that's just a teeny detail that bugs just me. But this movie reminds me so much of A Beautiful Mind. Uh, continue. Well, <laughs> that is it has a, that character also has a <laughs> mental deficiency, and there are several inca- scenes and several encounters with characters in those in that trust are real, and that you find out at the end of that film aren't real. That they are constructs of his. Imagining and are part of his insanity, and they're so. Wow. I, I just kept thinking about that movie.
3: I love that analogy. I will say that I think "Vampire's Kiss" is way more deserving of the Best Picture Oscar. <laughs> I agree.
1: No, I agree I'm as well. Say, I would I'm rather. Not, I was going to say I'd rather watch this ten thousand times. I am than,
2: not speaking to the film's quality. Right. I'm simply saying the story, the idea of of not knowing whether your protagonist's perspective can be trusted. That. That doesn't happen yeah. that often.
3: I wonder if Vampire's <laughs> Kiss does Vampire's Kiss show its hand earlier than Beautiful Mind because it's about halfway oh, yeah. through Beautiful Mind or more that you realize that those people were just in his head.
2: Yeah, I think <laughs> I think so for sure. And it goes a whole lot further, a whole lot faster. But just the idea of of we're ta- like as we're talking, we're saying, well, you know, did Rachel actually come to his apartment? Is his therapist real? Like almost from the outset, you do not know how much of what you're seeing can be trusted.
3: But in conclusion, vampires kiss way better than a beautiful mind.
1: Yes. If you take listener, if you take one <laughs> thing away, here, here is the nugget for you to for you to take home. This is the uh, anyway. So trying to get over his his traumatic experience with Rachel, we see Peter go out on another date with Jackie to a uh, art museum.
2: Yeah, to a weird art museum, too.
1: Well, it's, it's art. It's modern.
2: <laughs> sure. It's hip.
1: Okay. It's the 80s. And her <laughs> hat is a work of art as well. The topless hat. Oh, yeah. With her... With her... <laughs> sorry, I'm watching it now. <laughs> with her, her tuft of hair
3: <laughs> flapping in the breeze. And, and he ditches her seemingly for no reason. Like, for all we know, they had a good time the first time and he wanted to see her again. So why is he suddenly being a dick to her now? I didn't understand that.
2: Yeah, that's a good question.
1: Britt, what about the female perspective? Why is he being a dick to her?
2: I I don't know, except that he's just had this really bizarro encounter, so he thinks. And I the impression that I got watching this scene and watching like the next, you know, few minutes, all the way up to the point where he's again at the therapist's office saying that he had a perfectly normal weekend, which we know <laughs> is not true. You know, all of those scenes just seem like he basically has this crazy encounter with with Rachel and then spends the whole weekend just flipping out. I mean, what we see is that he leaves Jackie at the museum to just go, like, sit in his apartment for no reason, right? He's just kind of out of it. And then his weekend is over and he has to be normal again. So I didn't get a whole lot else out of why he might ditch her, except that he's just super weirded out. So not that much later... He, like you said, he tries to make amends. I think, does he have another round of therapist's work-life insanity before? I mean, he says, claims he has this totally normal weekend, which we know he doesn't have. And then I think he encounters Alva again at the office. But he does kind of attempt to make amends with Jackie.
3: Well, he does, because if this were the conventional vampire story, that would be the point where the person mid turn would try to cling to some semblance of their humanity. So he still goes through that motion only there's really no motion. He is not turning into a vampire. If I, if I can't say that enough, let me be clear. Peter Lowe is not turning into a
2: vampire.
1: Man, he wants to though. He just, that would just fix everything. And so as Peter is slowly losing grip on reality, back comes this this contract that they're looking for. We co- we go back to the office, and poor Alva, she's looking really hard, and she cannot find it. You get the impression that there's just thousands of files that she's having to go through to find this one kind of meaningless scrap of paper, but she's trying really hard. And um, in this, we get uh, this scene. Um, it, it When I saw it, I'm, we're going to play it for you, but it just we have not seen Nicolas Cage give us anything like this before, and I I know that, that sometimes actors have movies or scenes or, or, or times when, when everything seems to change. And for me, I, I don't think I'm going to see him in the same way again after this scene. Uh, we're going to play it for you now.
0: Oh. Seems I didn't have to do a song and dance after all, Alba. As you could hear, I couldn't get a word in edgewise. Mr. Heatherton is boiling mad. And he has implied that if he doesn't get that copy within the week... He will terminate his agreement with our agency and sign up with a more efficient one. Am I getting through to you? Alva? I'll go right to it, Mr. Love.
2: You know, if you compare this to the scene where he loses his ass uh, in Valley Girl after Deborah, what's her last name, breaks up with him, I feel like that was the early infant stages of crazy cage and here he's definitely honed in on a particular brand of insanity I like to I like to see that kind of progression in his career I think it's cool <laughs> I mean who, this is who, this is
3: absolutely the coming out and might be the peak of it too because I don't know if even bad lieutenant or uh even snake eyes comes close to this no i i I don't think it does that's
1: interesting that that it's the coming out party and kind of the peak of said un- unleashed cage. I mean, he's just he's just like a force of nature. I- I've never seen anything quite like this before. But again, w- that's part of exactly why we're doing this podcast is so we can try to see where these where these huge beats come. He he goes from this kind of obscure actor to this crazy actor to the biggest actor in the world to what we have now. Part of what we're doing is trying to trace this journey and try to figure out exactly what happened and when and, and really what we're left with now.
3: Sure. This is definitely vampires kiss is a turning point, And I think one of the reasons We never see it at quite this level again is because he didn't want to. He certainly didn't want to repeat himself, but once he developed this tool set, I think he could call upon Vampire's Kiss anytime he needed it, but didn't have to do the full Peter Lowe every time. I tried to find in uh, researching for this podcast – I can't find it anymore, but I remember reading somewhere that he said – his performance in Face-Off was based on Oh, Vampire's that makes a Kiss. lot of sense. It makes perfect sense, and I wish I could find the interview where he said that. He is, as Sean Archer in Castor Troy's body, goes to visit his criminal cohorts and looks at himself in the mirror and does drugs and makes faces. It makes sense that he's doing Peter Lowe again. So I think Vampire's Kiss definitely uh, showed the most vital tool he has in his tool set.
2: What I'm really interested to, to see as we progress through his films is that at some point, this particular set of skills that he acquires and hones in Vampire's Kiss turns hokey for the rest of America. And I'm curious to see if there is another place where we can definitely see, okay, this is the film where it goes from really like A1- skilled acting to caricature and whether or not that's something that he does in a film that we can actually identify or whether or not that's something that culturally we as a nation of film watchers have put on him as a trope. I keep wondering, is there at some point, you know, later on, like within the last 15 years, maybe, where he's him doing this now becomes the stuff of parody and not an actual identifiable, recognizable um skill that he took time to to work through
3: very much and i think that point might be by nicholas cage's own admission the wicker man because oh, he has the wicker yes, man he has since described that film as a comedy which i think is a great perspective to take on it but i wonder if that's what neil LeBute thought he was making <laughs> if anyone did though it was nicholas cage so at this point Peter makes uh, one last attempt to go out with Jackie again, and if this were a normal vampire movie, this would be the point where the person turning into a vampire would try to retain some piece of their normalcy, because turning into a vampire would be strange to them. They wouldn't know how to adapt to that, so they'd go about their normal human activities, which might be maintaining relationships. But of course, Peter Lowe was not bitten by a vampire. He is not turning into one, so... Uh, this is just going through the motions of said transformation, right. the mythology of that transformation. So he calls
1: Jackie. He tries to set up another date. She, like a, like a, the kind hearted, warm, loving person that she is, gives him one more shot and, uh, gets stood up again. He, it seems, has intentions to meet her except for as he is walking out of his apartment, he is caught in the web of Jennifer Beale's lure. She just shows up out of nowhere. She brings him back up to his apartment and feeds again.
2: Well, if you are well-versed in vampire lore, you will know that the only way a vampire can enter your home is if you invite them in. And he invited her in the first time. And she makes a reference to this in this particular scene where she lures him back upstairs. I think she says something like, you chose me, you're mine now, but he invited her in. So if she doesn't necessarily magically appear out of nowhere, she, she has been invited in. And so now she has access and entry into his space. Oh, I see. So this is another um, archetype that were of vampires and another you know element of folk legend that were being shown in this particular scene.
1: It's funny. He's acting more like a zombie than he is a vampire. And again, we get more neck sucking, we get more dry humping, we get more boob patches. Um,
2: I am slightly convinced they just did the this particular scene for like 10 minutes and then chopped it up and used it twice.
1: I'm more than slightly convinced,
2: it's exactly. <laughs> I mean, unless
1: he owns 17 of the exact same pair of boxer shorts.
2: Right, right. And she is positioned exactly the same way on top of him both times.
1: I mean, that's what keeps a relationship alive, darling.
2: Continuity.
1: <laughs> right. We go from feeling bad... For Nicolas Cage's chafing leg to feeling bad for poor Alva because oh my god, oh, if if you if you ever want a character that you have sympathy for, look look at her because um, we get a full dose of of Cage's rage towards her in this coming scene.
2: He jumps on the desk. I just can't get over it. He walks out and he sees that she's looking through the files and she kind of you know. And he just jumps on the desk.
3: (laughs) He walks out after screaming for her.
2: (laughs) Oh, oh, that's right. He screams for her like 10 times. And then he jumps on the desk, which has got to be two plus feet. Right. And then
3: I I think about my desk. I could not take that in a single leap.
2: No. Oh, no. Okay. So this is a side note. So he he chases her into the ladies room. And this could be a really intense, scary scene where he just goes crazy and it's really intense. But there's this old woman secretary who's just meandering around the bathroom, like isn't coming to her aid, isn't running out to call the cops, like a typical, okay, this boss is threatening this woman, right? He chased her into the bathroom. She's just wandering around.
1: Well, she has a great line and we're going to play it right now.
0: What the hell is he doing
2: in here? I have a gun. If you hurt me, I'm going to use it. What the fuck is going on? Like, she's just this random, no-nonsense old lady secretary who doesn't really care. Oh, I loved it. I thought it was so funny.
3: But I'll tell you, I bet she never misfiles anything.
2: So here's what I find interesting is in most of his scenes with Alma, he goes batshit crazy on her and then immediately... It's like the whole thing turns off. And he does that a couple of times. Where he's, he's very, her,
1: he's very sorry, you know. He
2: is literally a different person, right? In the
1: span of a few seconds.
2: Yeah, yeah. Like he is just ready to murder her. And then, I don't know, something just must click in his brain that he um, kind of realizes what he's doing. and That kind of snap
3: behavior doesn't really have anything to do with vampires. Vampires aren't bipolar.
2: No, this is more, I think now we're seeing that he's crazy.
3: Yeah, he is just a crazy person.
2: He's just a crazy person.
3: And I love that about him.
2: Included in the crazy is the crazy weird scene after the bathroom where he chases Alva, where he's sitting around the table with all the rest of his Oh, I loved this. Bragging
3: about it. No, he's like
2: doing crazy laughter. He's like crazy (laughs) maniacal. (laughs) And like, it's awkward. Like, it's an awkward scene. Like, they're all joking. And he's just like two beats off. You know, that like fits he's, with the voice. Oh, he totally. did the voice
3: to impress people like that, and he's still trying to fit in or impress them, going way too far. Nothing like a little office trauma. <laughs> <laughs>
0: the chase was my favorite part. Pete hurtling over those desks. <laughs> well, well, you weren't there for the grand finale, and she asked me for a raise. You believe it? She actually does keep a gun in that little bag of hers. Get out of Not year. really. Well, she takes the subway into Pelham every night. I don't blame the kid. <laughs> she asked me for a raise for getting chased into the ladies' room. Well, I think she deserves it, Sidney. You can
3: take it out of Attila's paycheck. <laughs> Fuck you!
0: <laughs> One question, Peter. Is my name written anywhere on the bathroom wall, and, uh... What did it say?
2: <laughs> oh my gosh! And, so but funny. it is
1: still a very wonderful and stereotypical boardroom scene of kind of the, the the good old boys club, and they're all they're all just kind of joking about horrible sexist attitudes.
2: Yeah, but he's just not in sync, and that's what I find so funny. He's just like he can't he can't match it. So then he goes back to his hotel or his apartment, and there's the note from Jackie: "Never see you again." Blah blah blah. And I mean, then I think is that when he. Trash trashes
3: his place.
1: He's breaking plate glass windows, and apparently, all of that was real. That was not props. That was not not that was not stuff that they had three three sets of for him to break it three times. He just went insane on set.
3: I can't really speak to the montage factor of intercutting it with the subway scenes. Maybe they didn't have coverage to cut between all the shots. I mean, he trashed the apartment, so they only had one go at it. Uh, probably. Simply for continuity uh, that we see Alva, you know, being calm, being shell-shocked from
2: Fingering her cross necklace, with, another another oh, trope, yes. another vampire trope, the cross, the and crucifix.
3: That cross won't save her from Peter Lowe because Peter Lowe is not a vampire. Exactly. Um, <laughs> for all of you playing
1: at home, Fred has mentioned again that Peter Lowe is not a vampire. Please take a drink. <laughs> And if you have bad livers, you are now all dead. <laughs> okay. It's <laughs> funny. He's not a vampire. Thank you. And I could have used you last night. Um, I wasn't... <laughs> and I don't want to give the wrong impression. I I, I knew it, it wasn't um, all adding up. I was just more reveling in
2: you. Kind in of what want we to. Bl- I, I kind of wanted to believe some of it was real. I don't think I fully bought in until later on in the film. Perhaps when he... Was pre- I think it was after his viewing of Nosferatu. That's when I was like, all right, you're just a nut job. Practicing <laughs> your creepy eyes in the mirror and buying fake plastic teeth.
1: But we You're have desperate. arrived we have arrived at at, at the pivotal scene oh, <laughs> if yes, you will. Thank God. <laughs> um, Fred, I want you to set this up. We're going to play kind of the greatest
3: hits of this, but I want you to set up what we're about to see and why it's so great. Well, Peter Lowe is making a very reasonable point in this scene, which is that this contract they were looking for should be in the correct file based on the alphabetical order. Yet someone has misfiled this scene, so he needs to remind them how to alphabetize a filing system. And uh, as my good friend Courtney says, when uh, she has kids and needs to teach them the alphabet, she is going to show them this scene.
2: It is just fantastic. I think capped off by his very five-year-old insistence with with her rump crossed arms of, I've never misfiled anything in my life.
1: It is just... Like, we
2: just died. It's great
1: because, yes, it's like... It's like the most beautiful sentence you've ever heard with an exclamation point at the end.
2: Uh,
0: Unless, of course, it's somehow been Uh, misfiled. Misfiled? Yes, misfiled. Sometimes somebody puts a document in the wrong file and then it's misfiled and it makes it much harder to find. Uh, Who? Who? What do you mean, who? I don't know who exactly. You don't? No, I don't. Whoever filed it in the first place, but for God's sakes, Peter, I am not telling you one single thing you don't already know. How could somebody misfile something? What could be easier? It's all alphabetical. You just put it in the right file according to alphabetical order. You know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, Peter. H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Peter. Q, R, S, T, U, V, w, w, X, Peter. Y, Z. Ha! Huh? That's all you have to do. Very good. You know your alphabet. I never misspelled anything. Not once, not one time. I'm sure that you didn't. Oh. I want to know, really. Who did? I cannot possibly tell you that. You can't? No, I can't. Ha. Huh. You call yourself a psychiatrist.
1: Fred, is
3: this your favorite
0: scene of the
1: movie?
3: Uh yeah <laughs> yes I, I mean it's it's maybe my favorite scene of anything, um yeah the craziness of <laughs> the craziness of the extent to which he is explaining why this very inconsequential thing is terrible to the point that he does the entire alphabet is just insane but so intentional and so choreographed I mean he is. Nicholas Cage is deciding exactly how to position his body, enunciate the words. Uh, it's a beautiful sequence in the filmography of Cage.
2: I would agree. He is He is one of those actors that really has ultimate control over every move that he makes. And it's so apparent in his films, and that's, I think, why it's so fun to watch him, because everything is intentional, every single piece.
3: I have a fantasy that Nicolas Cage would play me in the Fred Topel story, and there would be a scene where someone misspells a word, and he would go, how could you misspell something? You just have to put the letters in the right order. You know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P. (laughs) Q-R-S-T-U-V-W-X-Y-Z!
1: <laughs> it's just wonderful. And after this, we see, um, I, I believe, the very next scene. He goes into the office. He walks in. He's smoking a cigarette. He's wearing sunglasses d- during the day because, you know, that's what vampires would do. He grabs a rubber ducky off of one of his secretary's desks and throws it in the trash. And all the reaction is, wow, he actually is very eccentric. He's
2: so eccentric. Oh, this is a crazy scene. So later on that same day, he does
1: the meme face.
2: Yeah, this is where I just keep thinking, why are you still working there, Alva? It's so bad. It's so bad. So, well, that
3: face again is the face he does in Face Off when he's looking in the mirror as Sean Archer, who hates the fact that he's wearing Caster Troy's face. And all he can do is mug like that.
2: Yeah, it's, it's, it starts off that you, again I I can't I don't know why I don't know why but I just kept having I think glimpses or attempts at hope that he's not completely bananas even though he's made it very clear to us by now that that's where we're headed
0: every other secretary who's been here has been here longer than you Alva everyone and even if there was someone here who was here just one day longer than you I still wouldn't ask that person to partake in such a miserable job as long as you were around That's right, Alva. It's a horrible, horrible job. Sifting through old contract after old contract. I couldn't think of a more horrible job if I wanted to. And you have to do it. You have to, or I'll fire you. Do you understand?
2: Do you? He will never assign this file to anyone else, and no one will ever be allowed to help her. You have to do it. Yeah.
1: He almost breaks into a Peggy Sue got married.
3: He's real um, close uh, accent on this one He's
2: real close, but the crazy eyes I mean those are just the best I've ever seen he they're so good.
3: I think it's also important to note uh, that we were talking about the tools he has. It's important to see how the same tools can be applied so differently. so we have the same face. In this, as in Face Off, Peter Lowe is just demeaning this woman and going crazy. But when he does that face in Face Off, it's very tragic. Here's a man who has lost his son to this killer, and now he's wearing this killer's face and also knows that that killer is at home with his surviving family. It's the same face, but it's so tragically powerful in Face Off and – Uh, It's joyfully insane in Vampire's Kiss. Joyfully. Yes. This whole movie's a joy. So So here here is the vampire documentary Nosferatu that Peter (laughs) Lowe has decided to watch for research. It's great because he does the Nosferatu walk later in the movie.
2: He becomes that kind of a vampire.
3: And I think
1: it's really great that this movie – Goes Now, I don't want to use the term highbrow, but it definitely doesn't go for the cheap, typical vampire that that maybe the people in the um, 80s who are watching this movie might have been familiar with. It goes back to the silent film era when the general public might not have known what Nosferatu um, was or was referring to. It, It was really digging a little bit deeper and kind of paying a little bit more of an artistic homage to the vampire genre. And I do appreciate that. They could have gone lowbrow. They could have gone very, very typical of of what we would think of a kind of a Bella Lugosi Dracula version of a vampire would be. But they um, they decide to take it in a completely different direction for very, I think, very interesting and uh, oftentimes comic um, effect.
3: I agree, and I hope that's true. I hope it's not just because Nosferatu was in public domain. How dare you, sir? <laughs> <laughs> well, it must have meant something to Nicolas Cage because he later produced Shadow of the Vampire about the making of Nosferatu, which is a
1: wonderful movie with yeah. Willem, Willem Dafoe. And
3: yeah,
2: after Nosferatu, he just we see him going crazy. He's talking in the shower. He's just being a whack job. What is your take on? His decision to eat the cockroach.
3: Well, you know, now that, we've, now that we've also talked about the scene where he drops his groceries, I'm just glad he ate something because he left his groceries <laughs> on the street. So I imagine he's hungry. Well, eating the cockroach is probably the only thing most people know about Vampire's Kiss, if they even know that. You know, I guess it sort of becomes the urban legend of, remember that movie where Nicolas Cage ate the cockroach? And I honestly think it's the least crazy thing he does in this movie. I yeah, mean, exactly. It's, it's gross. Um, and I actually got this story wrong when I wrote my uh, fifteen essential Nicolas Cage stories. Uh, I said that it was take two that we saw in the movie, but that's actually wrong. They used the first take, but he had the director made him do it twice. Oh my So gosh. there are two takes, but he said they actually used the first one. And I think the explanation is this was a low budget movie they didn't have special effects so he was the special effect in doing something that big would be a special effect but as we see I mean things like the alphabet scene are are way more special <laughs> well I think it also shows that you know as a 20 something actor he's willing to take big risks like that, you know, with his own health, let alone his performance. I mean, I'm sure they didn't have a uh, Humane Society licensed cockroach, uh, you know, that was inspected to make sure it wasn't a carrier. Well, I for think some the – uh, I
1: think I think <laughs> the cockroach is probably fine. I think it probably <laughs> made, it, made it out the other end okay.
3: And, and actually, you'd probably not be allowed to eat an insect now because that would be uh, – Yeah, the Humane Society wouldn't allow that. No, I'm
1: sure there would be a CGI cockroach.
3: (laughs) I forgive Nicolas Cage for eating two cockroaches, uh, and I appreciate what he was going for.
1: Yeah, I often forget when watching these early films that he was 23 when he shot this movie. I I, I said it with Moonstruck, and I'll say it again. I I dare you to find a 23-year-old actor today that is as engaging and as... Fearless as Nick Cage has been in his early career, it's it's really quite astounding, and I think it really is pretty special. I don't think we see much of that anymore, and I and I don't want to be too presumptive, but he may this may be the peak of his career. The this string of movies has just been fantastic between Raising Arizona and Moonstruck and this. Um, it'd be hard to to get much better as far as pure
3: acting ability. Well, just you wait. There's some phenomenal stuff in the 90s, and uh, as a constant Nicolas Cage defender, although no one should have to be a defender, uh, but there was always still – Great work, even if if there's a period where you where it may seem like uh, Nicholas Cage did a lot of mainstream movies, they were always interspersed with risky stuff like The Weatherman and adaptation. So, mm-hmm. uh, so I guess don't fret, you are still in for uh, some fine, fine films. And I agree, Vampire's Kiss is, while maybe not my f- absolute favorite Nicholas Cage movie, it is my favorite performance of his. Wow. Well, that's a wrap.
1: Dropping it. So no, it's safe. not a rat. <laughs> just, Okay, so about. let's talk about...
2: <laughs> Once Mr. Cage has fully digested his cockroach, he makes it into his office to discover that his beloved Secretary Alma is has called in sick. And this, I, you just sort of get this pit of your stomach ominous feeling because you know he's going to go look for her. And he's he gonna does. He's going to go bring, bring her home. He he is. Bring her back. He is going to. And it's slightly terrifying we see him. Well, first we see a scene between Alma and her mother, who is quite the hard ass, really. I mean.
1: Everyone hates their boss. Everyone's attitude is everyone hates their boss. Get over suck it. Suck it
2: up and just go to work.
1: You need this job.
2: Right. And she doesn't listen. But anyway, Peter finds her at her home uh, ironing in her bra. So which, creepy. Which is what, you know, all <laughs> of us do all the time. Well,
1: I'm,
3: I'm assuming that most women just
2: we just never wear clothes. With the
3: blinds open. That she- reminds me, Working Girl ripped this movie off, too. There we go. Yeah, they, exactly. They had to one-up them. They're like, oh, you're ironing a your bra. Okay, we'll vacuum naked. That's and, right. And here's this guy.
1: Here's this creep who has been basically assaulting and harassing her for weeks at this point. Maybe just days, but I'm not sure. Showing up, creeping outside of her house.
2: She doesn't put a shirt on. She holds up a placemat. Well, that's just... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what what's that really doing? <laughs> then she lets him in. She lets him come in. At least she puts a shirt on. Well, he brought it. soup. Well, I guess no. He doesn't actually come in, but she does open the door to him and then agree to take a taxi with him back into the city. Well,
1: he was very—I'll say this—he was very convincing at the door. He apologizes. He is very contrite. He was worried about her and that she was sick. He feels horrible about what he said and what he's done, and. She's. It seems to work on her, I'll say that. Poor Alba. She's as gullible as she is beautiful. I
2: know. Then she gets into the cab, and he turns into some crazy, psycho, terrifying boss. Oh,
1: he turns into the worst he's been.
2: Let me, how does, why does she, she obviously sees that she's potentially in danger because she stops at her brother's garage, then she gets back in the cab. Explain that one to me. She gets back in.
1: Well, doesn't her brother also tell her that everyone hates their boss? And she's maybe overreacting a little bit.
2: Oh, yeah, that's true. And so she, she does gets blanks. That. So she gets blanks. For the gun. Super helpful.
1: For the huge gun that she carries.
2: <laughs> that she's from not, her brother. That she's not supposed to be carrying. I
1: thought, I was sure that when she said, oh, my brother works at that gas station.
2: That he wasn't really there.
1: Yeah, that she was just going to take off and, and yes. finally get away from this <laughs>
2: Like a normal, Like madness. a normal person would.
1: Right. No, she gets back in the cab. Yeah. And it's interesting because the cab driver has a... Almost a lovely story about his, he I, and kept his wife thinking, I kept thinking I kept thinking that he was
2: gonna die. I kept waiting for him to get murdered. Especially after they showed his wife of fifty years. I'm like, Oh, he's dead. <laughs> he's he's gonna get like bludgeoned to death or scratched. I mean, something is gonna happen to the cabbie. And he
1: doesn't say a word either. He just sits there doing his job, driving him around.
2: Yeah, right. Cage well, is
1: dropping the sea bombs everywhere. <laughs>
3: This is before taxi cab confessions. Exactly. He's just. There's he's also just no.
2: It. There's also no plexiglass divider. Well, oh, yeah. I think it's
3: just a great. It's just it a made great. Me
2: so it made me so uncomfortable to watch. Yeah.
1: It. Well, it's just a great few minutes scene of um, of acting. Again, I'm. We're just kind of piling on great scene after great <laughs> scene because he goes from very goofy and shining her on to about as horrible of a human being as you can see, just saying the worst things to her. He was obviously manipulating her, and he has no intention on sh- on making her think anything else. She kind of makes her feel like a fool, and uh, and poor Alva. She sh- must feel like she's getting it from all sides, from her mom, from her brother, from her boss. She cannot win.
2: The taxi cab scene ends with them at work and him in the bathroom not being able to see his own reflection.
1: <laughs> Which, Which we see because <laughs> he's not a vampire.
2: Right. Also, there's a guy in the stall
3: Thank who's you, like... May. Yeah, so he's like, who thinks, he, who thinks he's an actor auditioning for a part? <laughs> That's right, running his lines. And little does he know he's already Which, got the part, baby. But, <laughs> but that is a perfectly reasonable explanation to onlookers and passers by. He really is.
2: I mean, I just love the whole he's like touching the mirror and he can't see himself. Oh, it's so fun. It's so great.
0: Oh, oh Christ. Oh, Christ, where where am I? Where am I? It's... it's where, where am I? Oh, Christ, where am I? Oh, oh, I've become one, A vampire. Oh, God. Oh, God, where am I?
1: You're in the goddamn Lord. So he skips his way back to his office, and he's really losing it now. And I'll tell you who's not losing it Alva. She's finding it. She is, she finally, <laughs> she finally, after what seems like, oh, there's not really a timeline um, that's super well set out in this movie, but it's at least days, maybe longer, she finally finds this contract. And she is so excited, I think she actually thinks that Peter will be
3: happy about this right well, you would you would think he would be you would think that would be the resolution of the story, but it's not.
2: Right, because he's busy not turning into a vampire.
1: And maybe that's why I described the, the contract as semi-meaningless in the beginning, because ultimately we think that that maybe that finding this contract will mean something to him, and it really doesn't. Um, it's been this catalyst for so much of the action and the subplot. And ultimately, it's really not that important. Not to him, at least.
2: So he's in his office kind of having another level to his mental breakdown, right? He's not only really seeing... Rachel, the vampire, but he's seeing the cab driver with his wife. And by the time he gets to the door, he's going. He's saying, "It's." Oh, I thought this was interesting. It's too late. It's too late. Like maybe that's an actual moment of sanity, right? He's instead saying instead of maybe it's too sanity?
1: late for him. In you know, for yeah,
2: he's gone, right? Because then, it- because this is the end. This is the last time we see him sane. In for the rest of the movie, I think after this, he's just. He's gone.
3: Yeah, the the it's too late is the last time he's... <laughs> I, th- I
2: think so. I think so.
3: Well, it might be a,
1: a last gasp of any any trace of, um, I think of he's... sanity. Is that what you mean?
2: Yeah, because think about it. After this, he chases her into the basement, tries to drink her blood, then tries to kill himself. And then I think he goes and buys the teeth, right? And then he turns his apartment into a vampire's <laughs> house.
1: Well, so he okay, so I want to like, back up, I think he I chases think that's her it. he he corners Alva down in the the basement of this building right i'm I'm a little confused here. She gets the gun out, she shoots at the ground, he's not scared, he wants to die at this point he's he's asking to be killed, and he hits her, he bites her on the neck does he he doesn't rape her
2: I don't think so.
3: I'm not sure <laughs> uh I think he might I think he do you think that, could do
2: you think there's a time he, lapse
3: well, it could be he does, and in his head he's just trying to bite her neck but but to her he's really attacking her well, I think he's definitely attacking i,
1: I mean i don't wanna i don't
3: wanna No, i mean, i mean there could in the world of vampire's kiss, there could be penetration, but Peter Lowe doesn't know that he's done that, and he thinks he's just trying to bite her. Yeah, because he certainly later exactly later on in the um, in
1: the film he does tell his therapist in the therapist in his in his own head that um, that he raped her and so he at least believes it and then he uh, commits suicide or so he thinks he shoots himself twice in the head at least he he pulls the trigger right but they are blanks which only goes to further confirm his delusion of
3: vampirism because he cannot die he shot himself twice and yet he lives on. Right, you would think that he could just see the reflection in the mirror, but he didn't. So, <laughs> exactly. You
2: know, he's well, and I too.
3: love I love Nick Cage's performance in the scene
1: too. Just just putting that gun in his mouth and and firing it. I know it, they're not real blanks cuz that might actually hurt him, but just there's real smoke and it's it's it looks real. He sells it and it looks like his head is almost smoking um at the end of that. It, it really is an effective uh scene.
2: So, yeah, then I think what, the next time we see him, he's running through the streets? Is
1: this, is this where he's shouting, I'm a vampire, I'm a vampire?
2: I think so, yes. It's
3: I just think that's wonderful. what he's shouting Another
1: out. high point.
3: <laughs> Which is not something a vampire ever says. <laughs> I'm a vampire! I'm a vampire! I'm a vampire! I'm a vampire! I'm
0: a vampire! I'm a vampire!
2: Yeah, then he goes crazy and destroys his apartment some more. and
1: Some more, yes. Turns
2: it into a vampire den. That poor den. apartment. Oh, I know.
1: One of my favorite little touches, um, in these later parts of the movie is when he turns his, his nice leather couch into a, into a redneck coffin. <laughs> <You
2: know? laughs> I know. It's
1: like he just turns it over. You know, it's like, uh, when we would make pillow forts as a kid, but he just turns his whole, uh, his whole couch over and, and sleeps under there, very confined, like, uh, like a cough. And I just think it's wonderful. And they even add some really kind of fun sound effects of kind of a creaking wooden sound. And it makes it, uh, it makes it just, uh, the, the joke hits home for me. I like it a lot.
2: I think it's funny that he has to set his alarm clock. Like he's not, he's not fully a vampire because he has to time himself to wake up at night.
3: Hey Brent, he's not a vampire. (laughs) But he's trying real hard. He, and he wants got, to be, though. He's got, he his,
2: he's got to set his alarm to be. <laughs> oh, I think it's so funny.
3: So
1: we see Alva kind of uh, recuperating from this traumatic experience. No matter what it was, it was really hard on her. We we go back to her house. We see she her brother is an A.C. Slater ripoff, is, um, is going to get to the bottom of what happened here, and he's got his mindset on revenge for whoever did this to his sister.
2: P.S. Slightly awkward scene with brother ta- shirtless in bed later right <laughs> slightly awkward I,
1: I don't see anything weird about that
2: <laughs> slightly awkward just yeah i don't speaking
1: of awkward there's i almost a puberty scene where where <laughs> Peter is 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 expecting all these physical changes to be happening, and he's t- he's feeling his teeth, expecting to feel fangs. <laughs> and they're not and they're, there. There's nothing there, and then we cut straight to the uh, novelty shop where he's going to buy his his very first, almost like a training bra for a for a for a girl going through puberty. He's buying his first his
3: first training teeth. Right, vampires don't have to set their alarms or buy their teeth. Well, well
2: they certainly don't have to buy the good quality teeth.
3: No. <laughs> Do you have
0: anything
3: for less? Oh sure.
2: I got some cheapy.
3: Plastic ones. They're cheapy. only three fifty.
0: Cheapy. I would take the plastic. Okay.
1: Again, as described, the cheapies. The cheapies. <laughs> the cheapies. <laughs> Cause he's only got a few bucks in his wallet. So I just love it when he puts in his teeth. He he, he like opens it up like a like a junkie would open up, you know.
2: <laughs> the dime the eight
1: ball he got he takes go. him out of the packaging he puts him in and he is so euphoric he is um, orgasmic almost he just cannot handle it he sinks to his hands and knees and just crawls off screen it is just wonderful people you have got to see this movie it is just <laughs> uh i just i think i think i love it i think i'm in love with this movie i think you are and uh and i'm not exactly sure but he just goes to a payphone and calls his shrink
2: Oh, yeah. So this is the scene that makes me think that she is a real person in his life, whether or not all of her appearances are real, because the one at the end definitely is not the only
3: question is, was she always fake or
2: I don't think so. I don't think so. And here's why, because during this scene where he's calling her in the middle of the night to make an earlier appointment, which, again, there's a very juvenile hormonal sooner that I just really enjoyed. <laughs> um, but he's doing this and then there's like her young man lover that shows up in the scene. Good for her. <laughs> yeah, she's a she's a modern 80s woman. You know what they say. But that's he does not have any lines. There's no way that Cage could have that Peter could have known about him. You're
1: saying go, why would he fantasize the Yeah, why, why would he create
2: stuff? this this additional character for no reason? So I think she is in fact real even if not all of the scenes of her are real.
1: You're saying she's real, just an awful therapist.
3: Yes.
2: <laughs>
1: okay.
3: Real uh, and awful. And I guess I see that that young lover could be part of his fantasy of her. I
1: so mean, it, let's come down on one side or the other. Fred, <laughs> is she real or not?
2: I think she is real.
3: I'm thinking she's not. And also, a real therapist might not pick up her phone in the middle of the night. Uh, she wouldn't know he's calling from a payphone if they didn't have caller ID back then, but and then reschedule an appointment like that. I mean, that could be fake, yeah. I don't right. think, I mean, it might be a little too that's, convenient. That's just a fun theory. I don't think it's integral to the uh interpretation of Vampire's Kiss.
2: Agreed,
1: no, but what is integral is Peter uh rounding up, scooping up, and Systematically dismembering a poor pigeon.
2: Oh my gosh! <laughs> off camera.
1: Yes, and he just camera. just continues down this 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 spiral. It's happening faster and faster now. Uh,
2: so really,
3: if he didn't get himself staked as a vampire, he eventually would have died of pigeon poisoning.
1: Exactly, the pi- uh, pigeon flu.
3: Well, those aren't clean birds. No, they're they're
1: the dirtiest of birds. He si-
3: <laughs> he didn't cook it either.
1: No, and my favorite part is the is the burp. Off screen, we, we come up to him and we see a burp and you can tell it's almost when you can almost tell he's saying this was this might have been a bad idea.
2: <laughs> this was a bad decision.
1: Milk was a bad choice.
2: Yes. <laughs> the B-roll that we get for the next 30 seconds in the movie is all a full day lived without Peter in, in anywhere to be seen. Right. The next time we see him, it's night again. Now he has become a creature of the night. <laughs>
1: Still with his, his vampire teeth. In. His
2: transformation is truly complete. Now he now he is a not vampire. So what do you make of this particular scene? I mean, as a as a newly transformed vampire, one could do a, a great many things, but he goes to a club.
3: It would make sense that he is seeking out either his sire or stalk people, pursue people in the same sort of environment. Right. You got to go where the necks
1: are and <laughs> and honestly, if you if you watch it's it's actually pretty well shot. We just see neck after neck after neck and he mentioned it in the commentary as well, but he kind of looks like a great white shark a little bit, kind of just swimming through the crowd of people and and it just we see probably Ten different necks that he is looking at and going to choose from, and he's trying to find the the perfect victim.
2: And he is marvelous in this crowd scene where he's just wandering through, looking as freaky deaky as we've seen him. Well, and
1: he's doing the Max Shrek walk.
2: Mm -hmm. He's just fully in it now. It's so amazing. Oh, and the eyes. No one
1: notices. No one. No.
2: No one says a thing. Again, is that was that would that really happen? Although- I guess in the
3: 80s, people wore novelty teeth to clubs all the time. I
2: guess so. <laughs> when he finally meets his victim, I can't actually believe that he kills her. Although he does have to take his teeth out to do it, which I find interesting.
3: Yeah, he's sane enough to know that those plastic teeth won't do it. I think it's interesting that she's um,
1: she plays along. She's, doing, she's snorting coke at the table. Everything is... Um, Hunky Dory. But if he, he tries to make one little cop, one little feel and that's crossing the line.
2: Oh, yeah. And then he just goes for it. Then he yeah. gets mad. Then he gets vampire mad.
1: So is this is this indicative of anything? Is this scene kind of the, the culmination of, of his transformation? Or, or what do we what do we think about it? What, what's the significance of the of the club scene and, and this murder?
3: Well, I suppose if you just thought it was cute that he was playing vampire, it's important to note that if you go that crazy, then you have the capacity to really hurt or kill someone.
2: But again, it's not really noticed. I mean, he's walking around the club for a good five or ten minutes after that covered in someone else's blood.
1: He's, he's walking around for the rest of the movie covered in blood, and no one notices or cares. No one says cares. Anything. I know. Well, it is, it is New York City. Yeah, exactly. He's one true. of many, I'm sure. I guess so. The other notable thing that happens at this club is he runs into Rachel again, but yeah. the real Rachel.
2: Yes, not the vampire Rachel of his dreams.
1: He sees her. She recognizes him. She says, y- "Your name's Peter, right?" And so I think we're kind of putting it together that that she's real. That they they did meet. They had some sort of interaction, but um, everything else past that was a was a fantasy. Was was in his own mind.
2: Yeah, I think this is the part. Where I, I I think this is where if things are confirmed if you haven't sort of pieced it together already.
1: Pieced what together?
2: That he's not a vampire
3: well i mean i think as we see her come to his apartment over and over you know by the point where he's doing the mirror scene in the bathroom we might start thinking so he's clearly not manifesting the symptoms he thinks he is so what's with all these visits so we might be waiting for a confirmation scene like this
1: and can i just say that i love when he's um kind of walking up to her and grabbing her mouth and examining her teeth, just like a dog at the vet. Just kind of like, she's got vampire teeth. Look at her teeth. And trying to trying to show everyone. And obviously there's nothing there.
2: So we're coming up on the last few moments here where he gets kicked out of the club and it's dawn and he thinks he's going to get incinerated, but instead just continues to wander around New York covered in blood, all super crazy.
1: That was a great shot of him stepping into the sunlight too.
2: Yeah, that was nice.
1: Kind of beautiful, actually. So we're getting to the end here, where Alva finally feels comfortable enough to tell her brother
2: awkwardly, topless in bed.
1: He is not, not, not her. Um, but getting she, to the
2: point where Alva feels comfortable enough to have an awkward conversation with her topless brother, in yes, bed. Ex-
1: comma in bed, yes, <laughs> to let him know that she has been, um, in in one way or another, assaulted by her boss, and he um, he's not going to put up with that. He is going to take matters into his own hands and they're going to find him and they're at least going to hurt him and maybe worse. That right. seems to be the plan.
2: And a good solid plan it is.
1: And a great part of this is where they can just get the phone book and look up his find his name, you know, Peter Lowe and his address and his and his phone number. I just think it's um there's nothing that exciting about it other than what a novelty. What what a world we used to live in where you could just meet a person and find their home address just by looking in a paper book.
2: Oh, the good old days.
1: In the meantime, Peter is staggering home, finds a pallet, kicks in one of the planks and makes a makeshift stake and is trying to get passersby, I think, to uh, to kill him. Is that right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> from, from what I could see. And, f- Fred, and they're freaked out. <laughs> Fred, like,
1: he's didn't, freaky. Didn't they say in the commentary that, Sorry that these people really didn't know that they were uh, taking part in a movie. <laughs> I don't remember that. Yeah, I think I think, I think they think were uh, shooting they were, far enough away.
2: They were accidental extras, and they
1: didn't and they didn't have the permits. That especially some of those people that he was trying to get to kill him had no idea. They thought he was a crazy blood covered man uh, roaming the streets in New York, and it just it just is a, a wonderful performance in it. It really goes to inform. That's what I'm talking about. That commentary. Listen to it, folks. It really does inform a lot of the these little stories that that kind of stitch all the pieces of this movie together.
3: And, and it speaks to, you know, if someone carrying a wooden stake uh, on the street in New York is asking you to kill them, then the proper reaction is run away. Don't deal with that person.
2: Right, <laughs> right. It's a nice little how-to guide as well. Should Next you, time. Should Next you time. find yourself in Manhattan?
1: Exactly. That's none of the travel guides, is it? Well, no. maybe, maybe it should be.
3: <laughs> Man, he is a tortured soul at this point, isn't he?
2: Yeah, he, is he just, really is. He, is. He, he
3: says that specifically. He says he is a tortured soul and the plight of the damned.
2: Yeah, that's when he, he that's what he says um, when he hears the bells ringing, isn't
3: that? <laughs> yeah,
2: he hears the bells of the church and <laughs> he just brings it brings it home.
1: Is this where he runs into the wall? Yes. Okay, let's talk about this because this <laughs> is fantastic. Uh, he's staggering across the street, not looking where he's going. And he runs like smack dab into a building. And um, starts having a conversation with the side of the building. Um, and in his mind, the side of the building has now become his therapist. And he's back in his therapist's office. He is well-dressed, well-groomed, ready to take on
2: But still the holding his wooden stake, if you noticed. He's still got that in the therapist's office.
3: Regardless of my theory about the rest of the therapy sessions, this one definitely is not real. I mean, we keep cutting between his imagined therapy office and his end of the conversation to the side of the building. And it's very funny.
2: Yeah. I, I this is my favorite therapist scene precisely because her comments are so flippant and he's got this whole um, imagined explanation for why he does what he does. And it's because he just can't find love. I mean, I just think the whole thing is so funny and that he, his mind is able to wrap it up so nicely with Sharon and, Uh, the therapist's glib explanations for why he murders and rapes people. I just love it. Well, it's just
1: your id coming out. Yeah, I love it. was my favorite. That was
2: my favorite line. That was just your id. It happens. It happens once in a while. Well,
1: and I just think it's, it's honestly, I think it's great filmmaking, great editing, because the juxtaposition between him, I think, standing, standing up on like the air conditioning unit or something on like the ledge of the, uh, in the therapist's office. To the street where he's bloodied and, and battered and, and bruised is really very, very funny. Um, just the way it's edited together and uh, and seamless, the, how the conversation continues seamlessly. Uh, I think it's uh, Nick Cage's acting at a very high level. And I think the filmmaking at a very high level, too. I think it's I think it works on every um, aspect. And even the therapist is breaking down and, and laughing. And it feels very genuine. I just I think it's a very
3: well made scene. It is very well edited. But Britt, you're saying you like this therapy scene better than the alphabet scene?
2: I like her best in this scene. I love the alphabet scene for what he brings to it, but I think her character is so one-dimensional. It's hard for me to believe it on any level, but in this, she really comes to life. Like She really becomes this very animated person that only his mind can contrive at this point, point. and he needs an explanation for all of the things that he's done. And so he, he provides one for himself through this really over the top character. And I just love that. I think that this, it's so funny to me, just all of her reactions and all of her little sayings and the way that she just, you know, sort of justifies for him, everything that he's thinking. And then, yeah, I love that, you know, you, you do get cuts back and forth to where he's actually at and how crazy he actually looks. And, You can just see that everything's going according to plan. I just, oh, I love that. Yes, Peter?
0: Well, I did rape someone a couple nights ago. Girl at the office. I just lost control. It's just a little id release. No use to worry. Well, the fact is I did murder someone last night. I turned into a vampire. It's a long story. Goodness. (laughs) Peter, 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 people get murdered every day in this city. Do you think the world is going to stop? Yeah, I guess, but the police and everything, what if they find me? Would you stop worrying and just get on with your big romance?
3: Right. Uh, I just made a connection. That sort of happens in Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans, too, where you expect that character to get his comeuppance and be found out. But in that movie, everything just works out for him. Oh, it's wonderful. It, it's, <laughs> it's that, uh, not to skip ahead folks, but that is one of the
1: best cage performances that, uh, especially of the last, um, um, 10 years or so. But, and I do see the parallels. I think you're right. I love, I love how everything
3: is, seems to be wrapping up. So well. And this, uh, although I guess we should say it's only his fantasy that everything works out. Exactly. Right. Because we're about to see what really happens. So what happens now is uh, Alva has finally convinced her brother that this boss of hers is a problem. And he comes to settle things.
2: Right. And they kind of are waiting outside of his, of Peter's apartment until he's there. And he goes in with a flourish and a steak. <laughs> yes, exactly.
1: <laughs> well, a makeshift steak. Right. And uh, and brother goes in with a tire iron,
2: right? Old fashioned. I expected a gun. No, no, this is personal.
3: Absolutely, he
2: wants to feel the beating.
3: Absolutely, and yeah, just settle it man to man.
1: Exactly. And the thing is, you know, there's been a few scenes where we've gotten Peter wishing for death, asking for death, and here we see that his his wish uh, comes to fruition, and he makes it very very easy on Alva's brother. He lays down and he sets the stake in its
3: place and, and almost begs him to end his life. Right. It's funny though, that, uh, he also has a fight with the fake girlfriend, his fake therapist had set him up with. So even that 10 minutes, 10 minutes after meeting her, right? Yes. That (laughs) perfect fantasy comes crashing down too. So if anyone thought that there might even be some hope (laughs) for peace in his mind, there's not, he's completely unhinged. Even the fantasy is completely unhinged. And again,
1: and, and those scenes, cage is just delivering a great performance because he's, he's having this, uh, this, argument with this invisible woman. And it's very well done. You believe that he believes it in every respect. It's just a very, very well act. My favorite part is when he holds
3: the, uh, he holds the stake up to his crotch and, uh, and shakes it at the invisible Sharon. <laughs> as far as the staking goes, if this were a real vampire movie, which again, it is not, <laughs> this would be the point where, uh, I guess if, if it were a tragic vampire movie that the vampire would either get his comeuppance or uh, tragically find that they're not able to sustain the vampire lifestyle uh in this case yeah it's really just the brother of this terrorized woman uh, looking for a way to deal with this guy and he just hands it to him
2: yep i will i will say this though and that is that as much as as much as I agree with you on the face of it that's what it is in reality or, or at least in one in one dimension of reality for Peter this whole scene does fulfill for him the last trope of vampire lore and that is that he gets a stake through the heart how all of those events came to pass may not matter as much as the fact that he does fulfill that last final element of the vampire life which is death and how all right
3: he so, had to buy his own teeth, but someone did the staking for him. But he
2: did, he did, in fact, get a wooden stake through the heart.
1: Yeah, he got his, he got his victim. He um, got a stake through the heart. He's reached completion. So, Does that make Alva's brother Van Helsing? I think the obvious answer is yes. <laughs> well, he's got
2: the mullet for it.
1: <laughs> to close the movie out, we see Rachel back one more time. What does she say?
2: Oh, something my angel. I didn't particularly care for that. I don't like how they closed the movie with her. I thought it would have been more poignant for him to just die. I don't know why we needed to see her again. Maybe contractually she had to be in a certain number of scenes.
3: Well, was that in the original cut or a scene they added? Because another thing you learned from the commentary track is we are watching the director's cut because the producers or studio had taken a number of scenes out of the theatrical release so uh oh so maybe if you watch along he he points and i i don't know i it is on the table that that's part of the director's cut
2: well i i like that i'm gonna i'm gonna (laughs) take that pot that possibility
3: if you can time travel back to 1988 and see a theatrical screening of vampire's kiss we can confirm yes all right we have uh we have our work cut out for us
1: darling (laughs) okay well that was uh that was vampire's kiss wow what a what a movie we will get to our ratings right after this but first the song that was playing in the club it's not the talking heads i actually couldn't find what band this was it's not in the credits and it's not anywhere online but the title of the song is called tunnel vision
2: Okay, we are back. We've just completed our review of Vampire's Kiss, and now it is time to give it some official CageCast ratings.
1: Okay, if you don't remember, we rate the film as entertainment, we rate it as art, and we, and we rate Cage's actual performance. We have a zero to four star rating. Since we have a guest reviewer here on the show, I would love to know, Fred,
3: as entertainment, what do you give Vampire's Kiss well, since my ratings are just going to be a bonus, I would—I do not want to affect the totality of the ultimate CageCast reviews. When you complete this, I'm going to break the rules of my bonus contribution and give it a five because it is
2: just so god.
1: Brain exploded. Yeah, except
3: my guest appearance. I'm saying it's a five.
1: Wow. Are you saying that if Cage was
2: are you saying if Cage was a custom amp, you would have to include an 11? He he would go
1: up to 11. (laughs) He go
2: up to 11. (laughs)
1: Good, good. Apt analogy, darling. I am proud of you. How about how about you, Britt? As
2: entertainment? Yes. Well, I'll be honest. I did not find this particularly entertaining the first time through but after completing this podcast <laughs> recording I am highly entertained so I'm gonna sort of split the difference between what I would have given it and probably what it deserves and go with um, a three
1: I think that's great I'm yeah. gonna go I'm gonna go also with a three out of four I don't think it it it, it attains the entertainment level of something like a I don't know, like a Con Air or a Face Off, that kind of thing where I'm just giddy the entire time. But it is just fantastic. It is just, um uh, you know what? I'm going to revise this 3.5. It, it, it is just, what? it's just wonderful. And again... I was
2: starting to chisel that in stone well, on a tablet.
1: I think, exactly. All right, Moses, hold up. I think that this might be the kind of movie that as you see it a third, a fourth, a fifth time, as you show it to your friends, then it might achieve that level where it just... It only grows in its entertainment value, and I think that's what we're seeing from Fred here.
3: It certainly grows, um, and I guess I should also qualify my Is Obviously, I'm not saying the story of uh, and filmmaking of Vampire's Kiss is on the level of a Raising Arizona or a Face Off, but I guess when we get to the, to the further rankings, we can further explain. Just watching this performance, it could be a VHS tape and it would still be so entertaining. Yeah, this film as art. Yeah, my first instinct is as art. Uh, it is clearly a four because it's it's provoked so many different things and continues to mean something to me and to other viewers who discover it. As filmmaking, it might have to be a little lower, but I'm just a guest reviewer anyway, so it doesn't matter. It's a four.
1: I love it. <laughs> I love going for broke. Topal going for broke. Brit.
2: Well, you know, if I'm comparing this to prior films like Raising Arizona that just has so much artistic integrity, so thoughtful the way that film is laid out, the way it's shot, it's really hard to step Vampire's Kiss up to that level on, a, on an artistic scale. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to go like 2.5. I will make up for this low artistic rating with our final
1: Category. Yeah, we're we're on the same page. I'm going to give it a 2.5. There are some shots that are just great, and there's some editing that's that's just wonderful. But overall, it's it's. I wouldn't say it's pedestrian, but I would say you know there's no there's nothing that sets it apart where you're just like wow, this is a, a top filmmaker at the height of his craft. And right. so
2: I think that this film exists to fulfill one purpose and that is to showcase speaking of right
1: cage's performance yes i think Um, that
2: is the reason this film exists let's
1: let's rank that fred uh zero out of four stars (laughs) zero out of 11 stars uh where would you rank cage's actual performance in this movie
3: well I, i already gave a five so if i'm behaving myself i'm i would definitely call it a four out of four this is cage at his peak uh brit
2: I'm going to have to agree. I think artistically, the film didn't do much for me, but Cage is just stellar. And I'm going to give him, I think, my first four.
1: I think this is your first four as far as performance goes. And I'm going to make it a hat trick. It is a four out of four as far as a performance for me. It is just... Now, don't go into this movie thinking that you're going to get, you know a performance that's going to get nominated for an Academy Award. He did an adaptation. It made sense. He did in Leaving Las Vegas. Uh, definitely something that the Academy would really uh, approve of. This is not that kind of performance, but if we're just talking about an actor who is doing whatever he wants to do, the intentionality is there. The charisma is there. He is in control of everything he does, and it is just it's a delight to see. We don't see this. I have never seen anything like this before. It, it really is special, and I feel really—I don't know—it sounds kind of hokey. I feel kind of just honored to have seen it. Like it's—it's it's really, really great, and it—I'll never quite look at at Cage again in the same way. Now I did—I've done the math here, and I—I I don't really believe what I'm seeing. I'm seeing a nineteen point five.
2: Yes. And I think that's right.
1: If memory serves me, we'll have to confirm this next week. I believe that would put Vampire's Kiss as the number one highest ranked Nick Cage movie that we have viewed thus far.
3: How Really? Still over Raising Arizona. Uh, yeah, I
1: think Raising Arizona was a nineteen. And I think that <laughs> I I, I I might be regretting this at this point <laughs> because I don't know. I don't, I don't
2: think you are. I don't, I don't think know if I like be. it
1: more than Raising Arizona. I'm not sure. But as far as just the way we've ranked it, yeah, this is the number one Nick Cage movie that we have uh, – that we have seen thus far. And maybe that encapsulates the way I said it. It's the number one Nick Cage movie. It might not be the number one overall best movie he's done. But it is certainly the best Nick Cage movie that we have seen so far. It is something special. And I can't can't wait to see it again.
3: So you see now why I hounded you to be part of this episode. Yes. And I started early. I started around Raising Arizona time, right? Yeah, you kind of dropped <laughs> those hints. Like, hey, I might be available to talk about <laughs> Vampire's Kiss. That's just
1: It's just wonderful. Thank you, Fred. Thank you for pushing us into places where we were uncomfortable to go before.
3: <laughs> well, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Okay, we
1: just have one more uh, fun thing that we do here, and that is the Cage Cast Running Totals Rapid Fire Questionnaire.
3: Yes. Of course. And as yeah.
1: our uh, as, as our guest of honor, would you do us the honors of uh, answering the questions?
3: Yes, please. Ask me the questions because right. I won't remember them, but I will answer
1: That's them. That's okay. Drum roll. Here we
3: go. <laughs> and Britt. Go for it.
2: All right. In the movie Vampire's Kiss, is Nicolas Cage a lady killer?
3: Well, he both murders an actual lady. And <laughs> as we see early in the film, he does quite well in the clubs bringing ladies home. Oh, no, nice.
2: he gets, it's a twofer on this one.
3: <laughs> he is both a metaphorical and actual <laughs> lady
2: killer. Uh, is he drunk or high? <sighs>
3: No, he,
2: Whoa, does he, yes. did I,
3: he does coke, right? Well, no. doesn't he stagger out of a bar?
2: He staggers out of the bar Oh right. the first lady. Okay,
1: you're, right, you're we're, right. We're reversing that. He is drunk. He is drunk
3: at a point in Vampire's Kiss. Does good, he, ca-
2: good catch. Does he have crazy hair?
3: Absolutely. He gets so disheveled. He's actually very clean cut in the businessman scenes, and I, I honestly... Don't quite see how that hair becomes the disheveled hair hanging all over his Agreed. face later in the movie. Agreed. But that is crazy.
1: He goes through several iterations. That he has a pageboy look at some points.
2: Um, does he have a crazy voice accent or inflection? The entire movie. Yes. <laughs> crazy
1: voice. It's not. Does he? It's like how many does yes. he?
2: Uh, does it he? Is the
3: ultimate crazy voice. It
2: is. It is the best one. Does he? Ha- Do we see cage rage?
3: This whole movie is cage Do rage.
2: Do we not see cage rage? Would be a better question. Does he? He, al-
3: he does the alphabet in cage rage. Yes, <laughs> yes he does. He does.
2: He's, he does the <laughs> Sesame Street oh, of cage rage. Makes me so happy. Does he punch or get punched?
3: He he gets staked, but that wasn't the question. I'm, I'm going to say that counts.
2: Well, uh, what about at the club? Counts. Does he get he, when he gets yes. thrown out? Is there he, punching or just rough grabbing? He, but he does he punch the bouncer? Yes, and
3: it gets thrown out. So yeah, this, yes. there's punching. He punches in. the bouncer. Oh,
2: and out. he punches Alva Oh, in the in the basement. Remember, she's got that big bruise on her face. Right, today. That's right, That's right. All right. We good. do not
1: approve of that sort of punching no. here on Cagecast.
2: No. No. If there's one thing that we're about all right.
3: last question. Alright. But I but I, I'm positive that Nicolas Cage enacted that scene to show us the the dangers of going to this level of insanity where you would punch your assistant.
2: Yes. yes. It's
3: really a
1: it's really a, a message about tolerance for women.
2: <laughs> <laughs> all right, finally all on that. does he run with a flashlight? No. No. We'll get their listeners. We'll get to we're, many, we're holding out hope. many scenes of flashlight running.
1: We should call that the National Treasure Memorial question.
2: Yes. All right.
1: Thank you, Fred.
2: He might also run with a flashlight in Knowing. It seems like the kind of movie yeah. he might run with a flashlight <laughs>
1: Absolutely.
2: In. Yeah. Okay. And possibly Gone in 60 Seconds as well. There might be some flashlight All right. running. We'll, we, get we'll get there. We'll get there. We'll get there is the point. I might
3: be remembering it wrong, but you might see <laughs> some Rock, and that was even before National Treasure. All right. Oh, man. Oh, uh,
2: See the flashlight yeah, right. questions in there for a reason folks.
3: <laughs> there's a waiting.
1: method, there's a method to our madness. We're trying
2: to get just to, like you to like hold with out. Our hero. We're trying to
1: get you right. right. Thank you everyone for listening. Make sure and tune in next time for our next movie 1989's Tempo Dichedere. All right, uh, that's the Italian name of the movie. In English it's Time to Kill. Obviously it's starring Nicolas Cage and also a bunch of other Italian and Ethiopian people that you have never heard of, I promise. Um, have you seen Time to Kill? What do you remember about the film? What do you think about Cage in the movie? I'm guessing that this might be the least seen Cage movie that we might review out of curiosity.
3: Fred, have you seen Time to Kill? I have not. It is the least seen movie in that I have not even seen it.
1: Yes, we have it, um, we have it on VHS uh sitting in my office and we will be watching it soon. There's it's very, very hard to find. Uh it's about well I guess if you want to spend forty or fifty dollars to buy the DVD on Amazon, you can. Uh I can I will not. And so I will be going out to Goodwill buying a VHS player
2: for five dollars. For
1: five dollars and uh and trying to get it hooked up and uh we'll be watching that next time. If you want to send us an MP3 of your review of Vampire's Kiss or of Time to Kill, uh, we will put you on the air. Just send it in. Our email address is ilovecagecast at gmail.com or you can call in 3008-CAGE-OK. <laughs> That's 330. I can't even say it with a straight face. 330-822-4365 and leave us a voicemail. Uh, we would love your feedback and your comments on the show. Music this week can be found on the Vampire's Kiss original motion picture soundtrack and our theme song was written by Chris Cornell and Soundgarden and performed by Johnny Cash. Please remember to go to iTunes and leave us a four or five star review. It really will help us get the show out there and gain some listeners. Fred, again,
3: how can people find you and your reviews online? You can read my reviews and interviews on Crave Online. You can find my 15 Essential Nicolas Cage Movies article at Crave Online. You can also see my movie reviews and interviews on nukethefridge.com and follow me on Twitter at, at Fred Topel. Well, Fred, this was great. We really, really appreciate you being on the show.
1: It was really fun. And we will link to the article you talked about uh, on the show notes for
3: today's episode. Uh, well, thank you. This is a, a culmination of many things for me.
1: Okay, well, <laughs> wonderful. Well, for us too, I'm sure. We will be back soon, and until then, we will leave you with Stravinsky and a reminder to chew your cockroaches thoroughly before swallowing.
0: <laughs> Bye, everybody. See you later. Yay. <laughs>
1: Just wonderful! Oh, it's I, mag- I, it's magical. I, you, like I was. A magical la- I, 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 gleefully kicked my feet in the air last night like a like a schoolboy.
2: Right, right.
1: I will say, we see her dry humping his leg several several minutes.
2: Yeah, because she's not getting off on the the, sexual the chafing encounter. alone she's, has she's, got me, <laughs> bobbing. She's drinking his blood. That's why.
1: I don't know what your love life is like, Fred, but I always, you know, I always have to stay and make breakfast.
2: (laughs) Isn't it? Am I getting through through to you, you, Alva?
3: You do that really well, Britt.
2: Well, I might have been practicing it in my head all day. (laughs) (laughs) Possibly tempted to speak it to my own children.
1: (laughs) I was trying to make an insightful point.
2: Ooh. <laughs> thank, thank
3: you. And you can edit that together. Oh, exactly. Well, Peter Lowe has a very reasonable point to make in this scene, which is that <laughs> this fire he's. Hold on, 4- I, took
1: a, I took, took a drink at just <laughs> the wrong time. I was going to spit it all was, over the computer. There
2: was water. I coming need you out to start over, but
1: I was about to. I was just about <laughs> to. I'm going to compose myself. I'll be quiet. Go ahead.
2: Yeah, so I don't, I don't
1: think I don't know if we need to talk about this, but I'm just watching the movie and
2: what, he puts fact in the he, teeth. That he, he just puts just them in and then runs around the park at night. Oh, that he crawls on his hands and knees yeah, and then I runs around the park so chasing much. pigeons. I cannot handle. Sorry, guys, I cannot handle this. <laughs> Alright, you just you don't want to use any of what I said. Well, it
1: was you were just trailed off into nothing. <laughs> I, I did. Okay.
2: Well, do
1: you want to? I would love for you to try to do it. <laughs>
2: okay. Just maintain here, darling. Okay, I'll try. Okay. <clears throat>
0: And that was Cage News.
2: Do that again.
1: What you or me? Well, your mom sounds terrible. Burn.